0: Welcome to the Ides of Macro, where we discuss investing, trading and big picture frameworks all through the lens of global macroeconomics. This is the bit where I remind you that none of this podcast is investment advice. In fact, this is purely for entertainment and educational purposes. But please do hit that subscribe button if you want the latest videos from Lycan as soon as they're available. And with that, let's get on with the podcast. Welcome, everybody, to the 11th Ides of Macro, where we look at everything from economics through to the markets from a macro perspective. This month, I have Michael Nikolatis, who joins us from Defer Advisors and is going to be mainly discussing the dollar today. But we are going to touch on a lot of other macro ideas. Welcome, Michael. Nice to be with you guys. Nice to see you, Roger, again. Hi, everyone. Good to see you. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. Absolutely. Um, Now, obviously, we're going to be looking um, at specifically one area. But before we do that, could you just give the audience a little bit of your background? Because you've been in the macro space, the emerging market space. You've been trading and investing in that space for some time. So give us a little bit of a background, because that'll help frame your understanding of the world.
1: Well, uh, thank you. Uh, I've spent more than twenty years in the, uh, let's say, in the, in the markets place, uh, starting as a broker and then being a, a broker in research, and then had a the hedge fund which focused on emerging markets for ten years. So, one, when when you focus on emerging markets, you tend to see everything because it's only emerging markets are not affected only by the 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 the. Parameters of their economies, but they're also affected by global parameters. So this gave me a very good understanding of how the world works and how different things affect uh, emerging markets and the rest of the world. Having said that, uh, I was lucky to start in the US uh, in the 90s and I studied economics and international relations. At that time, I think I studied international relations more out of curiosity and it was a very good and interesting subject has come to now these days geopolitics and the history of how the world functions outside economics has come you know to the forefront so uh, suddenly that that second degree has given me another view, way to look at the world so it's been very helpful so now I'm advising a few investors on their m a and capital raising uh, uh, actions and also I'm uh, on uh, on to uh, advisory, investment advisory committees for family offices. So my time in the markets, you know, keeps keeps me very busy. It never stops.
0: Brilliant. And, you know, the dollar, we're going to start off with that because, you know, I always, I always think of the dollar as being, rather than being an asset, but it's the apex of the market. And if people get their view on the dollar right, they're probably going to have a good chance of getting a lot of other investments right. Although I think, as we'll probably discuss, some of the relationships that have held uh, held over the last 20 years may or may not um, hold for the next 20 years. And before we get into it, I think the other thing is that you know, it gets very tribal. The dollar is one of those things that we all see on the sort of financial media and in Twitter, where there's the dollar bulls, the dollar bears, those who think the dollar's going to end, those who don't. I always like to cut through that because everyone should, both sides have plausible arguments, but ultimately having a view on the value of the dollar, how quick it'll move, what's going to be the drivers, uh, it could be pivotal to people's um, portfolios and investments. So, getting straight into it, what what is your framework? Because you've got a you've had a well thought out framework on the dollar, um, and I, I believe it's a, a bullish one or a dollar strength argument. And uh, we've heard some uh, dollar bears on on our platform before. So, could you go through the sort of the crux of your framework, and then maybe we'll have some discussions around those various bits?
1: First, let me say the following. I think the dollar is probably the most important element in global macro watching the dollar and if the dollar moves to extremes, either on the downside or the upside affects everything. So given that the dollar is a global reserve currency, it's very, very important to understand how it works, how it functions, and what drivers tend to move it. So I think whatever whatever view you might have, okay, you might be bearish, you might be bullish, spending time on the dollar is very crucial when you look at global markets. Uh, Either, either from whatever point of view you're looking. So this is very, very important. Now, given that the dollar, I have I have a bullish view and it's a structural bullish view. It's not a trading bullish view in the sense that, since I think we spoke recently, but the, the dollar has moved lower since then. And we saw what happened yesterday with Powell, who came a bit dovish out of his Fed meeting. And suddenly the market is pricing like 75, basis point cuts for next year, and the dollar moved lower. Okay, makes sense. Let's not forget, first of all, that next year the U.S. has elections. So when there's an election year, things are a bit different than any other year. So uh, I published a paper like a month ago uh, explaining why I am structurally bullish on the dollar and why I think the dollar is moving higher. And and it's, a, it, it's, I'd say, a function of quite a few things. It's not just one thing. And uh, if you want to share it with your audience, we, you know, more than happy and we can talk about it. I don't know how you want to take it from here, but that's the, the, the you know, the big the top-down view. On yeah, how I mean, I that. think
0: what I'd love to understand is, um, as you say, it's a, it's a structural framework and, you know, nothing moves in a straight line. But there are some very key elements to this. Let, let's maybe let's start with what you think are the biggest drives. Is it things like, um, you know, is it the international system of dollars, the euro dollar money system, is that the driver? Is that just a a kind of byproduct? What do you see as the sort of thing that's the most important big macro sort of framework driver of that dollar view? Because then there's some other things below that under that sort of surface where we can get into some of the details.
1: Let me frame it a bit differently in the sense that because the global system and the global framework is structured in such a way, that's why the dollar that's why i'm structurally bullish on the dollar and by that i mean the following whether we like it or not the global reserve currency right now in the world is the dollar the dollar is like 80 90 percent uh, uh, on the on, on the one side of each fx transaction so whether we like it or not the dollar is pretty pretty dominant it's dominant in FX. it's dominant in trading it's, dro- it's dominant in fx reserves it's dominant in whatever we do. When we, we the, the reason the dollar market is a global reserve currency, uh, right now, and I'm not going to go to how it became one, but let's take it from here because then we can be talking for like ages is that there is a function also of the glob of the U S capital market. If you look at all the capital markets in the world right now, the most liquid, the most transparent, the most, uh, let's say the safest, if you can put it in, you know, quote-unquote capital market, is the the, the U.S. market. So when I accumulate dollars and I'm a country or a corporation or anything, I need to do something with those dollars. The most likely scenario is I'm going to buy U.S. treasuries, which are the safest asset right now in the world, and have an asset which gives me a return of 4 or 5%, hold it, and at any given moment I can press a button, and sell it and get my money back. This is I'm I'm putting it very simple because we've been reading a lot about the new current a new global reserve currency framework, which includes the BRICS. And I've had a few doubts on this and I'm very skeptical because let me put it this way: if you buy Russian rubles, if actually if you accumulate Russian rubles, you're a country that trades with Russia and you accumulate Russian rubles, what do you do with the other rubles? You buy Russian treasure bonds, okay. Let's say you manage to buy them. What do you do with them? And then if you wanna sell them, can you sell them? Is there a liquidity to sell them? I'm not that sure. And if you decide to sell them, can you take them out of the country? There are capital controls. So there are quite a few barriers when it comes to that. So when, 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 when we accumulate an FX, an FX reserve, we need to understand also that it's not just the currency that we see on the screen. It's also a function of quite a few other things that come with it. So uh, th- this is so uh, to put it this way, this is the framework where, from where I start. Now, given that this is how things operate right now in the world, whether we like it or we don't like it, and we can dispute why there are benefits and why there are habits and why this is not good, I'm all for that discussion. But this is how it is. <laughs> we can't do anything about it. So, given we are here and that the Fed has started to raise rates and then continue to raise rates and then did QT, all these steps are what they are doing is they are draining dollars from the global system. Why is that? When you raise rates, investors tend to bring money more to your currency because you give an interest rate. But when you stop doing QE and you start doing QT, which means that the central bank of the, the US Federal Reserve Bank stops buying treasuries, it means that these treasuries need to be bought by other market participants. When you buy those treasuries, what do you do? You buy treasuries and you give dollars. If the seller of the, of the treasuries is the US government, the US government gets the dollars and the market gets the treasuries. So if you look at the steps that have been happening in the last two years, Fed has rate rates, it has stopped QE, so it, so it has started doing QT, so all these functions have been draining dollars from the global market system. This is the reason why I'm structurally bullish on the dollar. Now, this is not something that will move on a straight line, as you've said, rightly, correctly pointed out in the beginning of the discussion. Probably there are going to be pauses, probably there might be you know a rate cut, there are going to be a few things along the way. And... As long as this happens, I think the dollar will continue to move higher. Now, there's one more thing we need to understand, and this is very important. When you talk about currencies, it's not absolute. It's not an absolute discussion. It's a relative discussion. So it's not like I have dollars. If I don't have dollars, I need to have another currency. So the question is, what are the other currencies doing at the same time? What are they doing? Why would I be holding another currency instead of the dollar? So... Maybe the dollar has a lot of problems, which we can agree on, but I think the rest of the world has bigger problems. So on a relative terms basis,
0: I think the dollar strengthens because of that. And one of the arguments that we're hearing a lot about at the moment is, you know, that the Chinese have been selling treasuries and the Japanese have been selling treasuries. And there's a bit of a debate as to whether they've actually been selling them or whether the notional value has been falling because bonds have fallen in value. But let's pretend that they are. Do you feel that um, there is another group of people who are there to offset that potential reduction in interest? Because again, when we look at things like the Chinese um, kind of value in their holdings, yes, it's fallen, but actually it's kind of gone from 1.2 trillion to 800 billion over the last nearly eight years. So it's actually not as dramatic as the charts everyone uses um, suggest. But let's pretend that they are going to continue dwindling their, their holdings, not just letting the value fall, but actually selling them. And the Japanese do the same. Who are the people who kind of step into that breach? Because those are two of, I think, the three biggest um, owners of treasuries. Uh, and, and they seem to be wanting to reduce their size. And, and do you feel that there's, there's an alternative source of demand out there?
1: Well, let me first clarify that I think it's a bit of both. I think they're selling and there's the, the notion of the amount falling because of the higher interest rates. Uh, that's one thing. Second thing, and I have been having this debate a lot on Twitter because there are different people coming up saying everyone's selling treasuries. That's why the... Look, rule 101 of finance. When interest rates go up, bond yields go up as well. Bond prices fall. And that happens because if they didn't, then the new issues would have problems in, 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 in people buying them. So if there's an arbitrage, if the new bond that the US Treasury is selling at four and the previous bond had a coupon of 2%, it needs to adjust to 4% so that there is no arbitrage. Because if there's an arbitrage, people will do it. So I'm sorry to, to, to say it that bluntly, but when interest rates go up, bond prices fall. And it's not because China is selling bonds are falling. Again. Yes, China might be selling. And in my opinion, and looking at the Chinese economy, which I've been paying attention a lot, I think the Chinese economy is not as robust as everyone thinks. And I think there is there are serious issues, and people are trying to take their money out of the country. So a part of it is, in affects uh, the, the Chinese trying to, to keep their economy stable and to keep growing. But I think it's not that easy for them to do so so i'm not sure that they are selling because they want to dump us treasuries because they have less value or they think that the us centri- the usd centric system is going down the drain even they even if they wanted to go and even if they wanted to create an alternative mechanism it will take years it doesn't happen overnight so and and it in and, and it and most likely it won't happen Without some serious uh, clashes, so that could be economic clashes, that could be military clashes, that could be any clashes. Hopefully, it's not a military clash. But if we look at the history of the world, the odds are that we're going to some form of clash. So, I think that we need to clarify how financial markets work. A. Okay. So, I think it was my my point my point being is that interest rates go up, bonds go down. Now, having said that yes the chinese might be selling different people might be selling and that's why yields are going higher and that's why but the demand is there let me put let me, let me give a, a number here which is very important the u.s treasury market has a liquidity volume traded per month around 15 trillion dollars Fifteen one 15 15 trillion dollars are traded in u.s treasuries per month The next most liquid market is the Eurozone, which is six trillion. And when we say Eurozone, it's not one country, it's the Germans, the French, the Italians, and then the the volumes fall off a cliff. China is, I think around two to three trillion. So what if, 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 if we believe that the U S the most pristine collateral in the world is going down the drain, what do we think of the rest of the world? So. Let's let me recap. I think yes, bon- uh, pri- uh, interest rates are going higher. China is selling partly because they have to, not because they want to, and not because they're going to another system right now. And I think they cannot afford to go to another system right now. And the fact that the the, the market, I'm am an owner, okay, I'm I'm a private investor, okay, and I'm looking at my screens right now, and I look at the world, and I see equity markets at record highs, which I understand why, but valuations do not justified right now. And I see a bond market, which is the U.S. Treasury market, like last week the two-year bond was at 5%, now it's 4.4%. And I can put my dollars into two-year bonds, get 4.4% and sleep like a baby at night and make a return. That's who the buyers are why take if i if i'm going to take extra risk i have to be compensated for that extra risk so if i'm getting 4.4 percent for zero risk taking shouldn't my risk taking be two three x that return in order for me to justify to do that so i think the buyers coming in are investors private investors global wealth funds everyone who's participating in the market and buying those bonds which for the first time after 20 years, are giving a return, which is pretty decent.
0: So does that require um, interest rates to remain relatively ele- elevated in the US? Is this in, in part a relative um, yield story with obviously that that premium in other regions where, you know, you, if you're getting 3% or 4% in the US, you need 5 6% in the next region. Is that it? Because let, let's say, um, you know, we go into an environment where Japan says, oh, actually, we're going to raise rates and Europe still sounds quite hawkish. And yes, I know that the that Powell and the Fed sounded like they wanted to do a pivot, but the reality of that might be some way off. But let's pretend we're in a world where the Fed becomes the biggest dove globally. Presumably that you'd look at that purely as a part of the short term, you know, that would be a short term pullback for the dollar as it resets the new interest rates. But it's not changing the structural trend because some of the things we've been talking about are really sort of interest rate differential stories rather than necessarily. I just want to put my money in the U.S. because if the U.S. yield is at one percent and everyone else is at four that's a structural story for those other countries, isn't it? Even if the US is safest.
1: Okay, let, let's let's take the three economies you just mentioned. You took you, you spoke about the US, Europe, and Japan. Look at these three economies from forty thousand feet. Which one's growing and which ones and which ones are not? So the only economy right now among the three that is growing is the US. The other two, which are the ones who should be cutting rates, if you want to put it this way, are not. Why is that? And this is really important to understand. It's The reason that this is happening is because inflation has been mostly an import issue. And it's been a supply issue. There's been a constrained supply in oil, in commodities during COVID, there have been different commodities which have been constrained, so there's been less of a supply. So prices went up and the countries that import those goods need to pay more for them. So when the dollar strengthens, the other currencies fall. And when I mean, and because commodities are priced in dollars, this means that these countries like Europe and Japan are importing at higher prices because their currencies are falling. So their inflation pressures increase. So they need to keep their currencies strong versus the dollar in order to mitigate these import pressures, these import prices, which cause a serious issue. Now, if the U.S. is coming out, and I don't know what they're going to do, but let's say they're coming out and saying that next year, probably, if markets and if things are looking good, we'll probably cut rates or do something you know, more dovish. The rest of them, both At least Europe will will cut rates for sure. The only reason they're not saying that is because they want to take advantage of it, of the currency going higher. It's now, I think, around 110. And they don't want suddenly the market discounting that the ECB will be cutting rates faster than the Fed. Because if the market discounts that the ECB is cutting rates faster than the Fed, then the euro will fall and then inflation pressures will rise up again. And right now... Europe is in a, in a in a in a I would say in a recession, not all of it, but most of it most of Europe is in a recession. So you'll have a recession and inflation. This is probably the worst mix for a central banker. So I think the ECB and Japan, actually Japan's a different story, but ECB will probably need to cut rates as well. Now going to Japan, Japan has another issue because 50% of their treasuries are owned by their central bank so they need to figure out a way how to raise the long-term end of the bond market in order to make it more functional and at the same time not create a debt crisis this is a bit trickier and we can go into another discussion but i think this is not the discussion for today we can spend like an hour on it but uh this is going to be more tricky for the rest of the for japan so when we look at the central bank, we need to look also at the other central banks. And right now, I think the central bank with the biggest mismatch in what it needs to do with what the economy is saying is the European one and the ECB has the problem. The Fed, the economy is still growing, whether we like it or not, or whatever we want to say, it's still growing. And inflation has come down. So we can, we, we, there are so many people arguing that Powell has been making grave mistakes. But as we speak... Powell has managed pretty well. We will see at the end what happens. But as we speak, Powell has managed not to 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 blow up the U.S. economy, drive inflation lower, and
0: keep the economy at at, at a good pace. So, and in terms of some of these flows, you know, we can talk about them. It's often the marginal flow that matters. And I remember, you know, when we saw the big differentials between yields between Europe and Japan and the U.S., particularly in the last decade. Uh, after Abenomics, and then after it will do whatever it takes, but really 2014, you know, we saw, I think it was George Saravellas at Deutsche Bank said, the Euroglut, something like 400 billion euros left and went to the US supporting the dollar. And obviously the chi- the, the Japanese are some of the world's biggest kind of creditor nation with all that money in the rest of the world. If at the margin you get Japan saying, well, okay, we're gonna raise rates. We're not gonna hold them super, super low. And at the margin they improve. And at the margin relative to the US, Europe improves. Do you think that there, that there will be sufficient flows back that could maybe you know, at least provide some weakness to the dollar and strengthen those currencies? Because it seems that this, these international flows have been largely behind the dollar strength, if we look at it, over the last 10, 15 years. That dollar strength has been driven by people like Japan and, and Europe going, there's nothing, no yield at home, I need to go abroad. But actually now if there's a yield at home, on the margin, I can bring money back or at least keep it with me.
1: Short-term uh, short or medium-term, certainly yes, is the answer. Now, I'll go back to the structural issue to to, to, to to explain my answer, why I think this cannot last as the current system is still uh, on. Now, the U.S. has a trade deficit and a budget deficit. Also, the U.S. economy is the biggest consumer in the world, whether we like it or not. 70% of the U.S. GDP is consumption. So by having a trade deficit, it means that it has a capital... Uh, by having a current account deficit, trade deficit, it means it has a capital account surplus. So all the money that leaves comes back into the U.S. as an investment. So being the most efficient, the most, the one that is growing... And people might get in short-term their one their back or their euros back because the interest rate is lower, is, be- is higher at that point. Uh, but where will they reinvest that money? So suddenly, you know, you get a pushback, as you mentioned, so medium-term, short-term, you get a pullback on the dollar. But then again, I sit on my money at the back, and suddenly, where am I gonna invest that money? Hmm. there we go back. So we go back into the U.S. So that's the one thing. The second thing is, and I mentioned the budget deficit, which is very important, because the U.S. is funding the entire planet. It's not funding only the U.S. government. And when it has a deficit, it means that it issues bonds. And when it issues bonds, those who buy those bonds need to give dollars. So the dollars go back to the U.S. The deficit goes someone else's, the bonds go to someone else's pocket, but the dollars come back to the US. So as as long as this system is still on and it doesn't look like it's going to break down anytime soon, the US will always accumulate dollars and will accumulate the dollars either by funding its deficit or by accumulating the dollars that come coming for investment because it is the most efficient and the most you know transparent market. It's not perfect, again, I'm not saying the U.S. is perfect. I'm saying it's relatively better than anyone else. So maybe in the short term, we get a pullback for the reasons you just mentioned. But again, after a certain period, people will come back in. And you can see that. You can see that. You can see that. Why do you think the S&P and the Nasdaq are record highs? What do you think? Mm-hmm. People are coming in. And they're coming in from everywhere in the world. And we we, we haven't mentioned that but in my paper and also in the... Uh, the Lycan paper, which was very good. People need to understand a bit the Euro-dollar market, and the Euro-dollar market is the dollars that are created outside the US. And by that, I mean when a European bank issues, uh, gives a debt in dollars, it creates effectively dollars outside the US. That market is as big, maybe bigger than the actual dollar market in the US. And when the dollar, creates a squeeze in the terms of higher interest rates or a shortage of dollars. Those banks that have given out loans in dollars to other third parties, which could be emerging markets or anyone, need to repay those dollars and get it gets tougher and tougher. And when it gets tougher and tougher, either you need they need to repay the, the loan or they have to post collateral for that loan, which means they need to find dollars to post collateral. And that creates an even bigger squeeze. So it's a, like a vicious circle that keeps reinforcing itself now i think that what happened yesterday with the fed is giving a breather and that breather could last a few months and but it, it all depends on how things you know evolve from there on
0: i think one of the you know, one of the important elements of, of what you mentioned there in this sort of euro dollar market is as you said i think you have it in your paper it's the Effectively, the twelve to thirteen trillion of dollar-denominated cross-border debt that exists outside the U.S., which I think is the BIS number, and I believe also that that um, I've seen it that actually that might num- that number might be double that when you take off-balance sheet dollar-denominated debts as well. I agree on everything.
1: The numbers and, and I think,
0: yeah, and I think and this is one of the things which I think is the, where where this sort of I was talk about the level of the dollar versus the relevance of the dollar because a lot of people say ah, oh, but the dollar's relevance may or may not, but may be declining because everyone's starting to trade in, let's say, Chinese with the Russians or whatever, whether it's, I mean, it's glacial that move. But what I think is interesting about this bit is that let's say the world started trading in things that weren't dollars. That means there's fewer dollars in the international system to pay those debts, which goes to your argument, which you then get a vicious spiral. So if the dollar declines in its relevance in the international scene, the dollar might start going up because there's fewer dollars to pay off that debt, which I think is that vicious spiral that you can get. And it's I think that's often overlooked because The whole sort of negative dollar argument in terms of its relevance is actually a positive dollar argument in terms of its value, because it's a shortage of dollar story with those debts still being in existence.
1: I agree 100 percent. So, you know, damned damned if it fails, damned if it succeeds. In both both cases, the dollar is likely to move higher. The only way for the dollar to move lower is if for some reason the Fed decides that it wants it lower in the U.S. government by doing QE, by doing other things, but it can only move lower by taking actions, by actions taken by U.S. entities or U.S. government or the Fed. It can go lower if the rest of the world decides that they wanna go lower. If the rest of the world decides the dollar wants to go lower, the only thing that's gonna do is accelerate its rally, as you just mentioned very well. So I'm 100% on board with what you said.
0: And, and how important is, um the US equity market because some people say the US equity market is going up because the dollars are coming in and others will say because the equity market is going up it's sucking dollars in i mean chicken and egg but you know sort of you get the virtuous circle from from that um and we're in a sort of world now where you know the the big 7 the magnificent 7 go up when rates go up because they're all sitting on cash with no debt and they go up when rates go down because they're growth stocks which is a positive do you see that you know, let's say we ended up in a world where you get a true recession in the US and the US equity market comes under pressure, maybe relative pressure to everywhere else. Is that pivotal as well? Is it is the equity market a key element to this story? And as long as the equity market is doing well, that sucks in the dollars. Or do you think that that the equity market can go nowhere and that doesn't change the framework for the for the dollar outlook?
1: Well, first of all, let let's explain that the bond market is like much, much bigger than the equity the, the equity market. So for looking at the bond market is more important than looking at the equities. Again, equities are important. I'm not saying they're not. But the size of the markets is, you know, it is much, much bigger to look at the, at the bond market. So in what you just mentioned, looking at the bond market and how it evolves, I think is has a bigger weighting in looking at it. Now, having said that, I, I understand the chicken and egg problem you just mentioned. I think, however, that, Markets are a discounting mechanism. And I, I, I've been puzzled a bit by something lately, and uh, I'm thinking out loud here. I, I haven't come to a conclusion. But if AI and gen AI is moving the world at a pace which we have never seen, just give an example, ChatGPT, the things it's doing is amazing. Now, I'm pretty sure that the likes of Citadel, of uh, of two sigma of, uh, you know, uh, all these quant funds, they use this technology. And I, I think the su- business cycles and the predictive analysis will come, will, the, the, the cycle will become shorter and faster. So I, I think this is something to to, to to put it as an input, which I cannot quantify it right now and how it affects, but I think it will be a part of, of the work we do in trying to understand the world going forward, because. The framework we have now is like humans competing with humans. Let me put it this way. If you have AI, you're not competing anymore with humans and you need to be faster than that, which is a framework, which I don't know how 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 it will come up to be in play. So I think maybe markets are ahead of themselves. Markets are discounting that the Fed will lower rates, so they're rallying ahead of it. And again, they don't think there's going to be an inflation and everything will look fine. In terms of valuation, it doesn't make sense. So it's more, I would say it's more of a flow thing, as you just mentioned. Uh, but, I, but I think that huge deficits in the U.S., both on the budget side and on the trade side, are creating that driver for U.S. investments to move higher. And I'm putting U.S. investments, it could be treasuries, it could be equities, it could be anything.
0: And and could you maybe just sort of explain that a little bit? Um, because you're on basically using the argument that a lot of the dollar bears use, which is the twin deficits in the US. That's yeah. the bearish argument. How how do how do you sort of you know how is it that you've come to the other side of that argument? Um, where some people see twin deficits dollar bear, you see twin deficits dollar bull. How how does that? Um, Alex, it's it's, 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 it's yeah. a good question.
1: If you look at if you read that any textbook, economic textbook, and you see twin deficits, you'll say the currency is going lower. Perfect. That's the case for any currency that is not the global reserve currency. When you're the global reserve currency, this does not apply to you. And the reason it does not apply to you is because you're funding the entire planet. So when you're funding the entire planet, I'm funding a Greek, I'm funding a Turkish, I'm funding a Chinese, I'm funding a German, and I'm funding the world these this funding goes somewhere and that comes back to me because i'm the best investment so i'm funding you and then you realize that ah what's the best investment the us so back in i'm i'm being very simplistic here for people to understand a bit the, the line of thinking it's not that simple but i'm trying to make it as simple as possible to make a point so yes the twin deficits are bad for any currency that is not the global reserve currency if you're the global reserve currency, you as long as you're the global reserve currency, you can have your cake and eat it. You cannot be forever. And if you cannibalize that relationship, you might end up having trouble. And I will I will agree with all the dollar bears that the first sign has appeared, and the first sign was confiscating Russian assets. That move by the US is is a red flag in the sense that if it were to do it again. Actually, once it did it, everyone knows that they can do it again. But if we were to do it again, then there would be a serious discussion by serious counterparties. And I'm not talking about Russia and China. I'm talking about European countries. I'm talking about uh, North American countries or other countries which are allies to the U.S. to start thinking "Mm, if they did that once, what's stopping them from doing it again because they don't like our agreement, energy agreement with, uh, I don't know, with Iran. Let's put it this way. So that's a red flag. And that's a very bearish sign for the dollar, but it's one sign. We haven't seen the second one that big. So with the dollar bears, I agree that this was a no-no. And as a dollar bull, I would not want to see another such, uh, such uh, you know, incident. If I were to see that, then I think that would create uh, it wouldn't be easy you wouldn't be able to go from the global from the dollar to, as a global reserve crash something else it would take time but i think then the countdown would be
0: on and i think i think that's probably one of the most important points because again when the, people talk about the importance of the dollar the relevance of the dollar and they talk about oh it's going to lose its hegemony this is superglacial. we always call it the super tanker trend it's super glacial and it's decades in the making so, you know, a framework, I always think of the framework as being a number of years. But certainly if someone said, even if, let's say, Europe or China or wherever happened to be bigger and better than the US, to actually change the system that's underpinning global trade, it's not going to happen in six months or 12 months or even six years or 12 years. It's going to take six decades. Um, and so that's, you know, that that's why, you know, as you say, the reserve currency is so important. Now, thinking, just thinking about that now, thinking about the implications, because There's two things I just want to touch on and get your views on these, because um, I'm thinking now for sort of medium to longer term investors with this framework. So not worrying too much about gyrations. Two of my favorite charts that I've used all my life is when I look at the dollar index. I know some people don't like it, but the dollar index versus the S&P relative to emerging markets. And it's pretty much the same chart. Dollar goes up, U.S. goes up, dollar goes down, uh, uh, emerging markets outperform. So question number one, and I'll ask question two before that. Question number one, does does that mean that you still believe that the U.S. will outperform in this environment? And the second one, which is a similar chart, which is dollar up and commodities down. So if I inverse commodities, dollar up, down, up, down, and commodities follow. We're in a world where everyone's becoming a selective commodity bull for the next 30 years because of energy transition. Do you think that we can get um, the dollar move and that relationship to commodities as we have seen sometimes over the last two years, to break down and the dollar can go up and commodities can go up together. So do you think that the equity relationship and the commodity relationship with the dollar strength and weakness will continue over the next 20 years? Or do you think there's gonna be a change?
1: Let me start from the second one, which is easier for me to answer quickly. The second answer is for commodities to go up and dollar to go up at the same time, you need all currencies to be debasing i.e. everyone doing QE for example or lowering rates at the same time but the dollar doing it at a slower pace so if everyone's printing money but dollar is printing less money and you look at the FXs, you will see that the FXs will remain a bit stable but they're all printing maybe the dollar is rallying a bit because it's printing less so it's outperforming but given that there's a global QE then, yes, commodities can go up and the dollar can go up together. So in that scenario, I think this is the only way that this breaks down. Actually, this is the only way it breaks down. Or if we move from the dollar being a GRC to another basket being a GRC, then if that happens, the most likely scenario is that commodities are going to start being repriced in other currencies or other alternatives. I don't know what that could be. And at that point, yes, the the correlation between the dollar and commodities will break down. We're not there yet. I I think we're far from that. So for the next, let's say, decade, I think it's very hard for this to happen. I'm not saying it's not, but I I don't think it's happening because because I don't think that the dollar will cease to be the GRC for the next 10 years. So if you believe that there's a new GRC in the next 10 years, then be my guest, that correlation will break up I'm hundred percent with you now, uh, that's the second one. The first one is, will the U S outperform emerging markets, correct? Yes. I think that structurally, no, but in the coming months, if we continue to see this lower rate environment or pose or whatever. Because of the base effect and because of the uh, the fact that emerging markets have been hit, I think in the next couple of months, the emerging markets and the rest of the world could outperform. But this is not a structural issue. It's just it's trading and a relative basis case. If you're on top of the markets and you're trading them, yes, that could be the case. So I don't know if I answered the question, but in the short term, yes. But in the long term, no, is the answer.
0: And... One of the arguments that I've also heard regularly, and I guess it probably goes. The answer is probably that over the long sort of time frame we're talking, it's not going to happen. But people say that um, the US is, in some ways, more structured like an emerging market um, in the way that it's sort of operating its its economic policy today than it was twenty years ago. But I'm guessing, but it's still got the reserve currency, so it can operate like that. I guess that's a twin deficit argument turned around because it's got the reserve currency. But a lot of people are sort of saying, well, you know, maybe now we're going to be in this world where um, market participants will treat the US slightly differently than they have, but again, do you think that's just going to take too long to really matter for the time frame, in time frames and frameworks that you're thinking about?
1: When you say they're going to treat it relatively differently, what do you mean?
0: So at the moment, we, you know, when we look at um, emerging markets, and you'd often see, okay, if interest rates are going up, the currency often gets hit, whereas most developed markets, interest rate goes up and often the currency goes up, and I think probably the better example of that is actually the UK, where the UK saw a relatively strong sterling when actually its economy was the worst because it was putting up interest rates, when actually it should have been probably dumping the pound, but it actually went up. Eventually, you start to see that relationship, which is um, interest rates up, currency down. That's how, you know That was a sort of a very, very, very broad generalization on how often emerging markets operate. A lot of people sort of saying that developing markets should, because again, it's the twin deficit argument, but maybe because of the reserve currency in the US, it doesn't matter. But do you think that, you know, we could see, outside of the US, some of the developing markets start to be treated like emerging markets and that eventually at the end of this game that you're talking about, maybe in 20 to 30 years, does the US trade like an emerging market?
1: First of all, people have to, their perception on the currency of of the underlying country has to change because an emerging market, by definition, doesn't have a strong currency. And an emerging market tends to borrow in hard currency, i.e. dollars, because interest rates, A, are lower, B, investors don't want to take the currency risk. So I don't think the U.S. would ever issue debt in non-U.S. dollars. Let me start from that point. So that that would be, that that would be something (laughs) to make. That that would certainly,
0: yeah.
1: That would be an Um, interesting conversation. So in
0: terms of, I mean, in terms of the, you know, where, where this can eventually go. Because one, one of the other arguments that is one that I actually have a lot of sympathy with um, is that eventually you get, and I think it was Julian Brigden said this, the napalm run, which is when the dollar moves so quickly and goes up so fast that it destroys everything. Is that, you know, is that the sort of scenario where, you know, the dollar hegemony might end, but it'll only end when the dollar becomes so expensive it destroys things? Because I always hear people going, the dollar's going down. I go, well, if the dollar's going down, it's cheaper, more people will have it. So it won't go down very far. Do you see this as being something where if the dollar does move disorderly and gets into that vicious spiral upwards for the dollar, but for everyone else downwards, is that how the dollar system could end? It just gets, it basically kills everything. Is that the end I, game I, here, I, maybe three I, decades I, down the road?
1: I agree 100% with that thesis. The end of the dollar is coming, will come from the dollar strengthening too much. If the dollar were to weak, let's assume for the sake of discussion, that the dollar weakens tomorrow and goes, let's say, to, I don't know, to 90 with a DXY, 80 to DXY, and to the Euro 160. I'm putting extreme numbers just to make a point. Who's going to be unhappy? The rest of the world is going to have a party. So no one will want to change that system. The system will change, and I think I agree with that thesis, if the dollar strengthens and strengthens quickly and destroys everything. Again, it could strengthen slowly and reach like one – 30 to the DXY, again, it would be a huge problem. But if it does it at a speed, then there's no way of moving back. It's going to destroy everything. So I think the path away from the dollar as a GRC is a path that goes through the dollar strengthening first and not the dollar weakening. A weakening dollar, no one will want to change the system. It will be, everyone will be happy with it. You don't change something you're happy with.
0: <laughs> uh, and. And in terms of investing, because this this is sort of, you know, ultimately the end game is you know we want to get the dollar right because we want our investments to, to go right. And obviously we'll get these one, two year gyrations. Dollar goes up, dollar goes down, interest rate differentials. Fine. Um, that's, you know, trading it beyond your toes. Do you have a, a sort of, let's say, a, a longer term strategy? Because when we're thinking about, you know, the the dollar, we're talking about something which actually is probably an investment horizon that's beyond most people's lifetime horizon in many ways. But do you envision, let's say, for the next 10, 15 years, 20 years, do you have a sort of structural mindset for a portfolio? If I was to say 80% of my assets are going to be, or let, let's say 60% of my assets are going to be in something which I don't really want to trade, and I'll trade the other 40. What sort of things do you look for, and what are the sort of things would be the core of a, a long-term portfolio in this sort of environment?
1: Well, first of all, let me say that after that many years, fixed income, fixed income is giving yields which are really, really good. When you can get five, six, seven percent in good companies, why bother taking the risk? If you're bothering to take the risk, the risk must be a multiple in the return you're getting to bother for that risk. So I think fixed fixed income overall will gain traction versus uh, equities. I think equities were likely to move sideways in the sense they're gonna go up, gonna go down, they're gonna go up, they're gonna go down. But I don't expect the market to do something spectacular as a whole, they're going to be equities. They're going to be names that are going to do like 500, 600 X, they're going to make things and, you know, it, and there are things that are game changers, which again, they will do really, really good things, but talking in as a market as a whole, I think it's very hard for that market to do something significant at this stage. So because. Let me put it this way. Let's say that whatever's happening right now and the, the Fed moves or age lower and the ECB moves lower, you're going to get a spike in inflation again. The, 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 in order for the, the... Inflation is an expectation thing. It's not an actual thing. If I know that, if I believe that inflation is going to go up, I'm going to drive it higher as a consumer. I'm not going to drive it lower. I'm going to start buying before it gets more expensive. So for that Mentality to change, it has to be ingrained in everyone's brain, and right now it's not ingrained in everyone's brain. And if, for any reason, central banks were to switch spots, then people will start consuming again. There's one caveat to that thinking, and I need to, to 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 explain it a bit. I'm very 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 skeptical of what's happening in China. If China were to 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 incur a financial crisis, that would be deflationary for the rest of the world. So that would be the sweet spot for the West to lower rates and not get that much inflation. So we need to watch China very closely and see if any turbulence occurs there.
0: And one of the arguments that um, has sort of come about because of the market reaction to the December Federal Reserve meeting is is that sort of... um, okay, it was just a one-off inflationary bout caused by the supply issues mainly and a bit of fiscal, that fiscal stimulus. And it's going to go, and we're going to go back to the old normal, which was basing at 2% or whatever. That's that's one side. The other side is is really that, you know, we're going to get recurring inflation if we get rates going down because we've moved into a fiscal world. Where do you see, because it sounds like it, sort of the inflationary outlook is a is key here. And do you think that we have moved from a, Disinflationary regime where the base was at two and it really got above four to one where maybe the base is at three and will be regularly up to six. Maybe nothing super, super high, but that sort of world, because it seems that that's kind of, you know, an important driver of the rate differentials will be relative inflation. And if inflation was mainly a supply shock and with a fiscal stimulus, then doesn't inflation go back to the low base? Or do you think that we've changed the framework to one where fiscal will mean we're always on our toes with inflation now?
1: I think we're moving to a fiscal, I agree. I think we're moving to more labor intensive investments than capital investments, because for the last uh, uh, for the last thirty years capital has take, has been in advance in the adva- in the advanced position of being able to exploit the frame the economic framework. But given the the large uh, inefficiencies and inequalities that have been occurring, the governments understand that unless they support the lower classes they're going to have serious uh, political issues, so I think we're going to that direction. Now, uh, I think if I were the Federal Reserve, and I'm thinking, uh, I'm, I'm always trying to think, what would I do? Why would they do that, or why wouldn't do they wouldn't do that? I try to question all, the, all the answers. What would be the sweet spot for the U.S. government, the Federal Reserve? The sweet spot would be uh, inflation at three percent, maybe four percent. No one cares. We've lived in that world. People might not remember it, but we've lived at ten and fifteen percent inflation. But three and four is fine. And let's say interest rates at the same level or three or lower. This means that you have a negative yield, or it means that. You're losing money. But inflation does one thing that everyone wants, to ha- everyone wants it to happen without telling anyone. It inflates, it deflates the debt. The only way to bring down the debt-to-GDP ratio is not to lower the debt. is to make the GDP grow faster than the debt. When you have inflation, nominal GDP grows much faster than the debt. So debt will go up, but GDP will go up faster. So the debt to GDP ratio will fall. So suddenly we don't have an issue. We've paid the piper. We, the consumers, we, the users, have been paying the piper, but at a slower pace, and it's it been taking it from our purchasing power. But we didn't have a war, and we didn't have a clash. So if you, if, if if I'm pretty sure in the closed room somewhere in the Federal Reserve and the U.S. government, they would be very, very happy with that scenario.
0: Hmm. I mean, I, th- I think it was um, I was talking to Jim Bianco recently. He was sort of saying a similar sort of thing, which is basically if you want to stop people piling up more debt, you want to keep interest rates high. If you put interest rates back at zero, everyone's just going to lever up again. So actually, higher interest rates are good. And, and it's, you know, you've sort of pointed out there this great dichotomy that we've had where, you know, when interest rates were at one and two or when inflation was at one and two percent, everyone was complaining there's not enough inflation. Then we get to five percent. Everyone's going too much inflation. But I think you're right. I mean, there will be a sweet spot. And, yeah, I'm guessing that the Fed will eventually come out and go, you know what? Three percent. Absolutely fine. No one's dying. Equities were doing well with inflation and yields at five percent, four percent. So what's the problem?
1: Exactly. We've been in that world and we've been in a much worse world than that. So, OK, the, 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 the caveat is that people will tell you we didn't have so much debt. Yes, we did not have so much debt. But if nominal GDP is growing faster than the debt, do you really have an issue?
0: Yeah. And, and do you, I mean, with, with this being a relative um, argument as well, do you see, I mean, because as you said, you know, the, the, which shirt do you want? Because they're all pretty dirty. I mean, if you look at the Chinese economy, the Japanese economy, the European economy, they're all saddled with debt. Some, yes, might be exporters of goods. And that's some some people say we're moving from a financial system back to an industrial system. But that's the sort of China centric story. But do you see any region, I mean, and, you know, any region that matters being able to grow in a significant way relative to the U.S.? Because, as you say, if the three other biggest trading blocks are effectively growing slow and have no chance of ever growing faster, then we're actually not talking decades, we're probably talking a century before we see a change to this framework. Is there anywhere that can come up quickly enough, meaningfully enough in the next four decades?
1: Uh, I, I would say Saudi Arabia. And the reason i'm saying saudi arabia is because they have a pile of dollars they need to switch away from oil because they know the end of oil is coming in 20 30 years they 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 do all these investments in the country and i think that could be the case but that's not a trade you can you can allocate a portion to it but you can't do really really you know sizable things on that but the if you were to ask me i don't see anyone who can invest in their economy and not have an issue. The other country is the US. The rest of the world is dependent on what the US does, and it's dependent on how it can manage to clean its shirt a bit better than the US. Because as long as the US has a cleanest dirty shirt, when, when you risk assess something, you'll end up in the US. Again, you will not put all your eggs in one basket, but your biggest allocation will come to the US. So again, in terms of sizing, the US is likely to benefit from all this,
0: but so as a specific that, region,
1: I don't see many regions who could do that.
0: One one simple way that so we can all measure that is that um, I just sort of have this simple rule of thumb, which is okay. Is any market deeper or more liquid, as you mentioned at the very beginning, than the U.S. And you look at the U.S. equity market relative to the rest of the world, and it's about sixty percent, I think, maybe slightly more, um, which is actually slightly less than the um, re, you know the currency reserve status, and then but I think trade goes through seventy percent. But as long as, you know, as long as the US markets, whether it be equities, debt, credit markets, as long as those are clearly the most liquid and the largest in the US, that's, it's gonna remain the most important currency. And and I can't see that changing anytime soon. I mean, Europe doesn't really have um, the sort of credit markets that the US has. It's got a decent bond market. The equity market is not even close. It just feels that, you know, when, if the US fell off its perch as being the number one in any of the major capital markets, then maybe there's a chance that the dollar declines in relevance and in value maybe but I, I disagree with that so it seems that maybe that's what we need to do is just look at you know the size and the relative importance of those markets and as long as the us is still clearly the number one then the dollar is still clearly the number one
1: i agree 100 percent. i agree 100 percent. that's how it seems to me at least yeah I, 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 if, if this is, for this to change a lot of things need to change and we're not there yet. The headline on the FT that the BRICS are making a new currency is not something that uh, will trouble me because this, this headline has been on the FTs and then the World Street Journal for 20 years. Every five, 10 years, we get, uh, we get that story again. There's a, you know, a tantrum with everyone saying the end of the dollar and we return to the point where we were. So a headline on the FT or on the Wall Street Journal won't make it. What will make it if suddenly I see Iran with China, which have signed since 2018 an agreement to pur- for China to purchase oil in one, if suddenly Iran is selling most of its oil in one, yeah, okay, that would be something to, to you know, it would be something to take a look at. But make uh, signing an agreement, having it on the FT cover, and doing nothing about it, you know, Doesn't make it. So it's good. It's a good publicity stunt. It's a good, you know, eye opener. But again, if you take a second dive and take a look at the numbers, you'll see that the volumes are really nothing. No, they're not material. So once they're not material, it means it's just on paper. So again, you need to see action. Watch what they do, not what they say. That's what I like to say. And what they do actually, not sign an agreement. The signing an agreement is the easy part. Actually implementing it is the hard part. So, once they start implementing it, then I would start considering it. We're not now, there. Just to,
0: just to round things off, actually going back to something you said at the very beginning, and I think for investors, you know, getting the dollar right is key, or at least um, the moves in it. You said you know, if the dollar goes up or the dollar goes down, it's very significant. And I always say, um, and it's very significant if it's a rapid move up or a rapid move down. If it just grinds, we can all adjust. What are the sort of scenarios where, you know, where as investors over the shorter term, what sort of speed of move in the dollar, and I know I don't want forecasts or anything like that, but let's just say using the DXY. Let's pretend the DXY is at 100 today. It's at 103, I think. What sort of move over a year in the dollar going up or down would you consider to be one that is a, a game-changing move for assets? Because if it goes from 100 to 104 over a year, who cares? If it goes from 100 to 120 in four months, you know what, what do you see as being a big move that, that matters for short-term portfolios?
1: I think looking at the chart, if it breaks above 108, it will accelerate. So that would be an issue. So, as long as it stays within the 108, there's nothing to worry about. If it goes above 108, I would worry. If it goes above 115, I would get scared.
0: Now, um, if I can on put the some levels. so So, sort of 15, 15 ticks or 15 big numbers, as it were. And do you when you say accelerator, you're talking about a move where suddenly, over a three-month period, we get something which becomes a self-fulfilling you know, move up, but a vicious spiral for everyone else.
1: Correct. Once the dollar starts moving higher and collateral is being threatened, more dollars will be needed, and this could be accelerated again. That is, if the Fed doesn't step in for whatever reason and gives liquidity to everyone and does QE or I don't know. We're talking now all else equal, right? So. If that were to happen it, w- above 18 i would i would be worried above 115 on the dxy i would be scared now above i don't think the dxy will go will break 100 if it, from the downside i mean uh it could test it but i don't think it will break it but if it moves lower it's better for the world it's not worse for the world yeah it's it's not a bad thing you as long as it moves lower the grc is say, it's safer for the for the dollar to remain the grc
0: if it moves lower than if it goes stronger it's a it's a bit counterintuitive but yes yeah, i meet. no I, I agree i agree with that that sentiment entirely um okay so just just very fine I mean, fascinating stuff and you know i, I always think you know, everyone's getting their head around the framework is the most important thing the trades are great but the framework matters to everybody whether you're a day trader or a medium term investor um is the is there anything that you're doing in the short term that, that you think is, is the right way? Because it sounds like your, your, your long term framework is dollar bullish, but it also sounds like you're you know, asymmetric to the upside, in, even in the sort of short to medium term. I know you said short term probably goes down a bit more, but if your base is 100, then are you kind of, kind of putting on sort of defensive trades just in, in the sort of medium term, let's say 12 month period as well?
1: Well, given where the vol is and everything, you can hedge your entire portfolio with 2% of the portfolio for the next six months. So for 2%, you can sleep at night, wonderful. Again, I, my, my view and I've been, this, this view has been uh, for the last 18 months and I think I was early. It's been buying two-year treasury bonds. I started buying them at 4%, up to 5%. I was early because I started buying them for. But my, 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 my frame of mind was I'll keep them for two years, A. B, I'm being paid to wait. And there's not been a, long, a lot of periods in my life which I've been paid to wait. If there is a crisis and the Fed lowers rates or whatever, most likely equities will correct. If they correct, I'll sell my treasuries and go into the equity market again. I have some trades now here and there, but I'm saying in, as a portfolio, I think right now holding treasuries or holding good corporate bonds, It's much safer. For me to take the risk, I need to be compensated for that. And I can't see how I can get compensated unless there is a specific idea and specific company, which for X, Y, Z reasons, I believe it's going to do magnificent. But from a market perspective, the risk reward is, is there.
0: And I guess, you know, if you do hold them for two years and nothing's happened, you've got your income and you can use that to buy some protection, so. Exactly. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much. Um, very, very clear framework. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just nice to understand So sort of, there's a lot of moving parts. And I think your paper has more detail on all of them, which is great. So hopefully we can post that. But thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for outlining thank that framework. And um, I, I still prefer the dollar balls, to be honest.
1: Thank you very much for having me. And I just want to finish with a quote. The hardest thing in markets is doing nothing. Doing nothing is the hardest trade of all. I, 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 even when I do nothing, I'm very, you know, it's every day, should I do this? Should I do that? The hardest trade is doing nothing. So I've kept my treasures. I've been waiting, you know, the equity market has rallied. So, you know, I've lost that, but again, doesn't matter. Uh, so I would like to thank you again for having me and, you know, always glad and great to speak to you and have these great discussions.
0: Thank you. Thanks very much. And good to see you. Thank you. Good to see you too.